0: please give a warm Pomona First Baptist Church welcome to Dr. Hugh Ross. All righty. I tell you, after a morning of sitting across from Dr. Ross, I don't feel very smart, I'm telling you. I was going to ask my daughter Leah, she said, can I get you anything from Starbucks, dad? And I'm like, no, just bring me a coloring book so I can like ask a (laughs) question Sit there and call her, you know, and uh, and forgive me for asking some of the same questions. Just for people that are uh, here at the 11:11, we want to kind of hear your story a little bit, and then please forgive me if you've been at the other services. I ask the same; they're used to me telling the same stories over and over again. But is it true that baldness is a sign of high intelligence in men? I just I hear there's scientific evidence for that kind of thing, and I want you to share the verse that you shared Well, with my Lena.
1: father, uh, who is very bald, said, "Son." uh, grass does not grow in a busy
0: street. That is your father is so <laughs> smart. These are, these are busy streets <laughs> and his is busier than mine, but mine's still busy. So that's, that, that's and the, really, Bible Leviticus, yeah, yeah, the Bible verse yeah. 1340.
1: Okay. If a man is bald, he is clean. He
0: is clean and he is smart and wise in all things as well. So great, great, great. Uh, tell, tell everybody, how did you get interested in astronomy as a little boy?
1: Well, my parents said that I'd been interested in science literacy from the time I was two. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was when I was seven that I asked them a question, are the stars hot? My parents said, yes, they're very hot. I said, tell me why they're hot. And they said, well, you're going to have to go to the library. <laughs> and they gave me bus fare to go to the library. And I came home with five astronomy textbooks. And every weekend I'd get another five. And by the time I was eight, I knew astrophysics would be my future career.
0: Uh, And then you were one of the youngest instructors. Where was that again, University of uh, Well,
1: um, I was uh, made the Director of Observations of the Astronomical Society in Vancouver. Wow,
0: at the age of? Sixteen. At the age of 16. Oh, my goodness. Okay. But now what's interesting is we tend to think, you know, did you grow up in a Christian home? You know, is this just a search for reasons to believe what you already taught to believe when you were a little boy? or What was your exposure to Christianity early on? Well,
1: my parents were moral, but they were convinced that there was no such thing as eternal life. I didn't actually get to have a conversation with a Christian about Christian matters until I showed up at Caltech at age 27 to do research on quasars. They're they're hard to find in Canada, yeah. but uh, yeah. they're yeah. easier to find here. I got it. So.
0: Got it. Very good. And 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 then tell about you had seen some Christians from a distance, and I love that story.
1: Yeah, when I was 11, I got to see two Christians from 30 feet away. Wow. And. Uh, <laughs> They were two businessmen that came into our public school, put two boxes on our teacher's desk, and they left without saying a single word. Yeah. But in those boxes were Gideon Bibles, and we were invited to take one and be one of one. Each one of us did. And I still carry that Gideon Bible around with yeah. me that wow. I got at age 11, uh, because it was through my astronomy, you know every year I would look at a different sub-discipline of astronomy. And at age 16, I studied cosmology, the origin and structure of the universe. And there was a big debate going on then is it steady state? Is it uh, an oscillating or reincarnating universe like the Hindus teach? Or is it Big Bang? And even back then, the evidence was heavily favoring Big Bang. And I knew it was Big Bang, it was a single beginning. And there was a beginner to explain that beginning. And so from the age of 16 onwards, I did not doubt the existence of God. But I was highly skeptical that this God that created this vast universe would bother to communicate in any personal way to us human beings on this little speck of dust we call planet Earth. But for the sake of intellectual honesty, I did take time to look at the different holy books of religions of the world and started off being persuaded they're all going to prove to be humanly crafted frauds and was able to discount the Hindu Vedas, uh, the Buddhist commentaries, the Quran, um, And eventually, however, I did pick up my Gideon Bible and realized right away how different it was. These other holy books were just filled with all kinds of provable scientific errors. When I picked this book up, number one, it wasn't vague, esoteric poetry. There was no appeal to intellectual snobbery. Everything was clear and direct, And what really caught my attention, several places in the Bible it commands us to put everything to the test. That really appealed to me as a young scientist. It also told me step by step how to put things to the test. And that was interesting because I've been taught the scientific method in grade one. I got it in grade two. I was taught it every year. But none of our teachers told us where it came from. When I picked up this book, every creation account, you see the scientific method. And it's no accident the scientific revolution exploded out of Reformation Europe. But over a period of 18 months, I was studying the Bible one or two hours a day, looking for a provable error or contradiction, and couldn't find any. There were things I didn't understand. What was interesting is at the end of those 18 months, things I couldn't understand at the beginning now are becoming clear. Um, but what really caught my attention was how the Bible (coughs) predicted all the fundamental features of Big Bang cosmology, explicitly states that the beginning of the universe is the beginning of space and time itself, that the universe expands from that beginning under constant laws of physics, where one of those laws is a pervasive law of decay. And I realized from my studies, no astronomer even hinted at the idea of a Big Bang explanation of the universe until the 20th century. And so here is a book that was thousands of years ahead of its time. And I found over a hundred places in the Bible where it had accurately predicted a future scientific discovery. And I actually went through the exercise at age 19 of calculating the probability that these Bible authors could actually write this stuff as accurately as they did without divine inspiration. And that probability was less than one chance in 10 to the 200th power And that was the same week uh, I got a physics problem from one of my professors to calculate the probability that one of us in our class of 600 would be killed by a sudden reversal in the second law of thermodynamics. That probability is one chance in 10 to the 80th, and therefore I don't worry about the second law of thermodynamics. (laughs) But what I had demonstrated is here is a book that's 10 to the 120 times more reliable than the second law of thermodynamics, and therefore be irrational for me to not to put even more trust in the message of this book than the trust I put in the laws of physics. And what I love about the Gideons, they tell you what you need to do when you become persuaded that this indeed is the word of God. First of all, they tell you that you are not perfect, but that God demands perfection, and basically they say, if you don't believe that, look at your own conscience. It reacts whenever you violate God's law, even in the slightest. Um, but it goes on to explain how the creator of the universe himself came to earth, died, and was raised from the dead so that he could trade his moral perfection for a moral imperfection. And they basically say, don't you think that's a good deal? And I says, yeah, that's a really good deal. But also they made the point that, uh, you know, the creator of the universe knows better than you and I what's best for us, and therefore it only makes rational sense to make him the master of our life. And they give you a place to sign your name, saying, Yes, I want that moral perfection based on what Christ did on the cross, and I want to make him the boss of my life because he knows better than I do what's best for me. And they've got a place for you to sign your name and date it. So I did that at age 19. And immediately began to experience desires I never had before. And that's exactly what it tells us in Philippians. Giving your life to Christ, the Holy Spirit gives you the desire and the power to step-by-step begin to live the Christian life. And also, I realize that God will actually bring people to you. The thing that made me hesitate giving my life to Christ were all the skeptics I knew at the University of British Columbia that were going to jump on me once I found out I was a Christian. Um, <clears throat> what I saw instead was God bringing physics students to me uh, that had questions. In fact, my lab partner and best friend came to me and said, "Hugh, I've been going through struggles in my life. I need to talk to somebody in this campus. Do you know anybody in this campus that knows anything about God?" We talked for four hours. He wound up becoming the chairman of the physics department at the University of Alberta. In fact, you know, I got to contribute some scripture verses for his funeral a few months ago. So, but you know, that happens. If you've prepared good reasons, God will not only bless you, he's going to bring people to you that need to be similarly blessed.
0: I thought it was fascinating what you said, that there tend to be, you know, our our impression is is that you know scientists, you know, don't believe in God. And there is a certain percentage, a high percentage, that, you know, maybe are agnostic, don't know one way or the other. But you said it's much higher in the physical sciences, like astronomy and physics and those kind of sciences, than it is, say, in the biological sciences. Would you explain that? Well, it's quite high in
1: general. Uh, Last survey indicated that 45% of all research scientists, believe in God and an afterlife, wow. but there's a big and an afterlife and an God af- and an afterlife. Forty-five percent.
0: That really kind of explodes a myth, doesn't it? It yeah, does it
1: explode it. a myth. In fact, that survey was first done in 1916. Forty-five mm-hmm. percent. Uh, but Professor Luba, who did the survey, said with the advance of science, that percentage is going to shrink. Sure. The survey was repeated in 1996. Same percentage.
0: Forty-five percent.
1: And an afterlife. afterlife. But it's much higher amongst mathematicians, physicists, and astronomers, and chemists Mm -hmm. than it is amongst those in the life sciences. Mm -hmm. And having read the Bible, I think I know why. Mm -hmm. It tells us for six days God creates. Mm -hmm. On the seventh day, he stops creating in order to bring about the end of all evil and suffering. So if you're a scientist looking at the present day era... All you're going to see is natural process. That's what biologists keep telling people. We do our research. We see no evidence for the supernatural handiwork of God. Why? They're looking on the wrong day. What does it tell us in Genesis 1? For six days God creates, those six days are bracketed by an evening and a morning. Each one has a start point and an end point. But notice there's no evening and morning for the seventh day because we're still in the seventh day. Two authors in the New Testament speak about God's seventh day as an ongoing event. An eighth day is coming, but that eighth day will only come after God permanently removes evil. The new creation is the eighth day. So if you're a scientist researching the seventh day, all you're going to see is natural process. But notice in astronomy, our data comes from the past. It takes light time to reach our telescopes. Almost everything we study is in the six days, and we see the handiwork of God everywhere. Even books published by agnostics and atheists admit that everywhere we look in the universe, we see overwhelming evidence for design. Freeman Dyson, an atheist physicist, put it this way, when you look at the universe, it's impossible to avoid the conclusion that somehow the universe knew we were coming. It was all designed and advanced for human beings
0: and you've said that that we're in the perfect spot in in the universe to observe and the perfect time to 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 see that and that to me is a very compelling piece of evidence
1: well the fact that we're at the only we're orbiting the only star in the universe where life is conceivable where we can see literally the whole history of the universe and even witness the radiation from the cosmic creation event and the fact that we're at the only time where that is possible Tells us there must be a being beyond the universe that wants us to read the history book of the universe. Why would we be at the only time and the only location where it's possible to read the entirety of the book?
0: You know, something I had heard before, which is about all the history that's in the Bible, and I've heard it stated that there's more history in one chapter of Deuteronomy, for example, than there is in all the holy books. Uh, they picked one particular one, the Koran, but really all, right, almost right. all combined. But you had said that there's ten times more cosmological information in the Bible than there is all the other holy books combined as well. So the Bible is not just a poetic book of nice thoughts. There's some concrete material in there that we can test if we want to.
1: Well, we're told that the heavens declare the glory of God. Romans tells us that we're all without excuse because God has revealed himself through the record of nature. Psalm 19 actually calls the record of nature a book. And uh, we're literally commanded as followers of the Creator to be theologians and scientists. God gave us two books, the book of nature and the book of Scripture. We're to use both, and every human being has been exposed to the book of nature. So, we can use that as a tool to bring people to faith in Christ.
0: Now, I promise, for those that have been at the early services, I will get into fresh material here. Right, right. But one other thing, I just love that Gideon's and Russian physicist in Moscow story. I just think that's an awesome story. Soviet Union, uh, tell the backstory to that leading to what you did with the physicists in in Moscow. Well,
1: you've heard that I came to Christ through a Gideon Bible. The Gideons have had me do a number of fundraisers for them. And I did one in Santa Barbara in the 1980s where we raised $35,000 for Russian Bibles. And it was in 1989 that I was invited to go to the Soviet Union uh, funded by the Soviet lab. And I said, well, why do you want me to come? He said, we want you to give lectures on scientific evidence for God, but you can only speak to scientists. Because these scientists traveled outside the country. It's like they couldn't control their minds. So I was in Moscow speaking to 700 physicists and, uh, about scientific evidence for God. In the end, one of the physicists said, can you tell us how you became a Christian? So I kind of gave my testimony and then I gave an invitation and uh, said, if you've given your life to Jesus Christ today, as I have prayed, would you please write your name on a piece of paper and send it up here? I did not was not aware there was a paper shortage in the Soviet Union at that time. They were scrambling to find pieces of paper. I saw these physicists taking you know, a sheet of paper and ripping it into a hundred small pieces so they could each write their name on it. We had a mountain of paper at the front. From what we could tell, at least 95% of those physicists gave their life to Christ that day. And then I saw these two men at the back who were standing the whole time. And they weren't smiling, but now a big smile broke out in their face. They were Gideons, and they gave every one of those physicists a Bible that day. And they told me afterwards, that fundraiser you did these are the Bibles.
0: That is so awesome. They weren't the same two guys, would they? Because that would be like an (laughs) X-Files kind of thing. That kind of sounded spooky, you know, they're in suits and uh, they were in suits. They they were were in suits, but two different guys. Okay, good. Okay, now I've been biting my tongue not to get into this all morning, so now we finally can. I'd like to talk about your most recent book, uh, Hidden Treasures in the Book of Job. Uh, What motivated you uh, to write this book?
1: Well, I've always liked the book of Job, and I wound up reading, you know, over a thousand commentaries on the book of Job. But, you know, I noticed that they all miss the science content in the book of Job. And as a scientist, I realized the book of Job has got more content on creation and science than any other holy book.
0: See, I always think of it as a philosophy book, like the problem of evil. But well,
1: that's certainly the yeah. main subject of the debate. But... But notice how these five men connect the message on nature with the resolution of the problem of evil. And so I thought this is really fascinating. The real solution to the problem of evil is embedded in God's message about nature. And what I also noticed, these five men had all different opinions, but they all agreed there had to be a God. They were not debating that at all.
0: This is Job and his four friends. Job and his five four men, friends, And you right. said that was like a, a brilliant guise of their time philosopher conference kind of thing. Well,
1: there's yeah. evidence in the text that these must have been the five most brilliant men of that era. Yeah. In fact, I argue in the book that of all the debates that have ever been recorded in human history, this is the greatest debate. And so as you explained, it's also the first book in the Bible and kind of lays the foundation... Everything else we see in the Bible. And so it's an obvious place to go for the creation story, far more detailed than what you get in the book of Genesis. But I tell you what really caught my attention. You know, when I've debated atheist biologists, I always bring up the subject of the origin of life. And, you know, our little card explains why that's such a compelling piece of evidence. But if you look at Genesis 1, it talks about three separate origins of life life that's purely physical. Life is physical and soulish and one and only one species that's body, soul, and spirit. And it's the book of Job that really dives into the subject of the second origin of life. When it talks about soulish life, that's a Hebrew term that means an animal endowed with mind, will, and emotions with a capacity to nurture their young and relate to members of their own species in an emotional way but also God has endowed them with a capacity to relate to human beings and a powerful motivation to serve and please human beings. And this is something that Job and his friends talk about and makes the point that if you look at these birds and mammals, you can see how much they want to relate to us and serve and please us until human abuse comes in. Now, when we abuse these animals... Instead of them wanting to come to us and form a relationship with us, they're afraid of us, and they run away. Well, Job makes the point, our sin does the same thing between us and God. Because we've also been endowed with a powerful motivation to serve and please God. But because of our sin, we wind up running away from God instead of towards him, or pretending he doesn't exist, all because of our sin nature. And uh, then uh, Job makes the point that um, these animals are crucial for launching civilization. What I love about Job 38 and 39, it gives you a top ten list. It basically lists the ten most critical birds and mammal species that God gave us to launch and sustain civilization. I mean, and what got me is it talks about, say, the donkey and the horse, now evolutionists will say the donkey and the horse are proof that have descent with modification, that they came from a common ancestor. Why? Because of how similar the bodies are. But notice what it tells us in the book of Job. It doesn't focus on the bodily features of the donkey and the horse. It tells us how different they are in the way they relate to human beings. You can't find two animals that relate to us more differently than the donkey and the horse. For the evolutionary model to be true, they would have to have similar features of their emotions and their mind and their will in relating to human beings as their physical features. But it's the opposite. And it's like that with the rest of the animals mentioned in the book of Job. Each one of them is a testimony to the handiwork of God. And one reason why I think we have such a high number of atheists today, they're not close enough to see the donkey or the horse or the cow or the ostrich, or the goat, or the lion, or the raven. If you've got intimate contact with these animals, you can see how dramatically they testify of the power of the Creator. I mean, evolutionists, for example, will say that the chimpanzee is the smartest of all non-human animals, and there are relative, but they're actually incorrect. The smartest of the non-human animals is not the chimpanzee, it's not any of the apes, it's a raven. The raven is the smartest. Ravens, without any human training, can take a tool to recover a very different tool to get a food treat. The apes can't do that. They take many years of training before they can do that. A raven will do that without any training at all. Um, But what I especially love about the way the book of Job ends, it talks about all these bird and mammal species and says, notice... That you human beings have been able to tame every one of them, but some are easy to tame and some are difficult to tame. The goat is extremely easy to tame. The Leviathan and the Behemoth are the most difficult to tame of all, which I think refers to the hippopotamus and the crocodile.
0: That's that was interesting. You said hippopotamus and crocodile, not some people thought dinosaurs, but I, I really loved how you just think. Well, hippopotamus, it can't be dinosaurs. And, yeah. Number
1: one, the Bible never mentions any terminology mm-hmm. that not all generations of humanity would know what it's about. Mm-hmm. We've only known about dinosaurs for the last 200 years. Mm-hmm. And dinosaurs are not nefesh animals. They're not soulish animals. Mm-hmm. So it's talking about animals that we can form a relationship with. Now, you can tame a crocodile, but it's extremely difficult. You've got to take the crocodile from the time it comes out of its egg and spend an hour of handling that crocodile every day uh, for months before that crocodile will trust you. Uh, and then if you miss a day, watch out. So, very difficult to tame.
0: I noticed why they weren't at SeaWorld. You know, they got the dolphins, no crocodile shows. So, right, uh, right. Yeah.
1: <clears throat> there are crocodile shows, okay. but oh, that's it's right, yeah. people who've taken a lot of effort to tame them. Um, but God makes the point like it is with these animals, notice they can't tame one another. It takes a higher being to tame these animals. Likewise, it takes a higher being to tame us. And some of us are more easy to tame than others. You know, some humans are more difficult to tame. But it's making the point that only God can bring humility to a proud human heart. And if we don't come to God for the humility we lack, we're never going to get it. We're not going to get it from our fellow man. It takes a higher being. And what God is saying is, look to these animals They will teach you. They will instruct you. They will instruct you about what your sin does to damage relationships and what the lack of sin will do to bring about relationships. I mean, if you actually visit these birds and mammals that have never been abused by human beings, you will see how drawn they are to have contact with us. I had that opportunity visiting wild parts of Canada and just watching how these animals really do are drawn to us And want to relate to us. We were that way once. It's our sin that's gotten in the way. But we can come to God. And get the humility we need. To form a relationship with him. So that explains what I said earlier. If we have enough contact with these bird and mammal species. It testifies of God. And testifies how we can come into relationship with him. I think that explains why. I've never met an atheist in a rural setting. They all live in cities.
0: Isn't that interesting? It's really more of an urban phenomenon. then. Well, you expand on that because...
1: You know, in one sense, here we are in the 21st century, the most technologically advanced generation has ever existed. But in some respects, we are more ignorant today than people lived in the days of Job. Because back in that time, everybody had contact with a wide number of species of birds and mammals. But it's easy for a human being today... To live in a big metropolitan city and your only contact are these highly domesticated birds and cats and dogs, you really don't get to see animals in their natural
0: realm. So you're saying one of the most godly things we could do is go to the LA County Fair this afternoon, go to the petting zoo, right, and uh, and then head up to the worship service at 5 o'clock at Picnic Hill. But in all seriousness, I mean, I have to admit, I find myself. My family knows this. My favorite part of the L.A. County Fair is to just get in there with the animals and stuff well, like that. Me too. There's something so. that draws me, and that I want to hang out with animals. You know, you know. So uh, that's why I married my wife Kimberly. You know. So yeah, <laughs> she's an animal. But uh, that that is very well. Let me okay. Let me take this, and this may be a crazy. Um, but the 11:11 service is used to me going on tangents at this third time through. Okay. You know, there is this thing with the younger generation where vegetarianism is almost like a social justice issue for some, not for all, you know. Yeah, how do you, because, you know, I have my, you know, a dear friend that's a vegetarian. He's just teaching me about some of the social justice aspects. It's, it's not doing much because I still love my meat, but but... Is there some connection there? It's interesting. I just see that with the younger generation. It's not so much an older generation or my generation, which is older too. Do you see any connectionalism with that at all? Or um, I'm throwing a curveball out
1: here. Yeah, you are, and uh, that's it's good because Scripture does definitely encourage us towards healthy eating. So, I mean, if you go into the Levitical law, it tells you to avoid certain foods, and 2,000, 3,000 years later... We realize, you know, it's good not to eat too many of those foods because it's going to give you heart disease and give you greater propensity for cancer. And, you know, people have pointed out that uh, if you eat too much meat, uh, it will affect your health, and you eat the wrong kind of meat. And that's what's interesting. The book of Job actually talks about the ostrich compared to the cow and makes the point that God gave us a cow to perform heavy farm labor and when you get a relationship with a cow, the thing you notice is when cows are bonded to human beings, what really gives them joy is doing heavy labor for you. Mm. Your you know, children aren't like that, but cows are. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but we don't use cows for that purpose today. We use them for meat. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it's not the healthiest meat to eat. But notice it also mentions the ostrich. And what I talk about is how the book of Job actually gives us solutions to a lot of the ecological crises we're facing today. And if we were to transfer dependence from beef to ostrich meat, ostrich meat is red like beef, rich in iron like beef and the nutrients, but extremely low in cholesterol and fat. It's a very healthy meat to eat. And if we were to breed these uh, animals in the appropriate way, we could get that meat for about one quarter of the price of beef, mm-hmm. and also they release less than ten percent of the greenhouse gases into the atmosphere per pound of meat that cows do mm-hmm. when we talk about global warming, the biggest human contributor to global warming are the greenhouse gases emitted by the cows that we' bred to such huge numbers. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you want to get eighty quarts of milk out of a cow it's going to be expelling a lot of greenhouse gases so But if we were to go to ostriches, that would really be the best thing we could do to try to resolve global warming is transfer meat dependence. And yeah, I'm a fan of uh, eating more vegetable matter, although I'm not a vegetarian. I think there are healthy meats you can eat, and uh, it will give you nutrients. Depends what kind of activity you do. I mean, if you're a strict vegan, for example, uh, it's going to be difficult to engage in some physical activities. But... uh, and the Bible tells us you can be a vegan, you can be a vegetarian, you can eat meat. Just tolerate one another. Uh, and don't look down your nose if yeah, someone doesn't right. eat the way that, you do. That's
0: right. The Bible does teach that, that, right. that this is something you can hold to your own convictions, but it don't use it to judge somebody else. Yeah.
1: That carnivorous activity is a good thing, not a bad thing. Mm-hmm. You know, my complaint about certain vegetarians is they actually look at carnivorous activity as a fundamental evil. Mm-hmm. The Bible doesn't teach that. And what we discover, for example, if you take away carnivorous activity uh, from the um, herbivore animals, their health goes down, their death rate goes up. And the thing that I think gives us a wrong perspective on this, we are a distinct predator. We can kill anything we want. The rest of the predators on the planet can only kill the weak, the sick, the dying, and the unawares. And that actually enhances the longevity, the health, and the population of the herbivore tribes. So, yeah, when we have Thanksgiving, we thank God for the different carnivores. We also thank God for the parasites. A lot of people look at parasites as being fundamentally evil. They're not. Now, we've made some more pernicious than God intended them to be. They're mosquitoes over parts of the planet where God never wanted them to be. That's our fault. Uh, but the point is, uh, just like the carnivores, the parasites play a crucial role in enhancing the health and the biomass of the planet. So it would be appropriate to thank God for the parasites on Thanksgiving as well.
0: You know, your Thanksgiving dinners must be something. And, you know, I... I, I uh each each service he's talked about different things that they thank the Lord for you know thank you Lord for Jupiter to block the asteroid belt from smashing us and things like that Right, right. each service and by the way Hugh's wife is such a delightful person she's right down here I believe or maybe she's in the green room what a delightful person you, you, you're you a very smart man for who you chose as your partner as well I've well it's because it. of
1: her I'm able to speak like this in oh. front of audiences because um, you know I'm on the autistic spectrum, and when I met Kathy, I couldn't look people in the eye. I had trouble speaking, and uh, so she's really helped me through the years Aww. to be able to do this.
0: Oh, isn't that? You know, she can hear us back there. So. That is so awesome. <laughs> Good night. Um, can we finish rounding out back to astronomy uh, a little bit? You said that seeing Job before Genesis is actually helpful thing with regard to understanding Genesis. Well, it
1: helps me in talking to skeptics, too, because they love to smash Genesis for what it leaves out. And I said, well, there's no need for Moses to repeat what Job has already explained to the people. The Israelites already had the content of the book of Job, and so what he was doing was adding to what was already in Job. And so I encourage people, when they get attacked for their beliefs in Genesis, take them to Job. Use that as a foundation, and it helps the skeptics realize, wow, these books really fit well together and give us... Because a lot of people misinterpret Genesis because they don't see how Job has provided an interpretive guide uh, to look at the sequence of events in Genesis chapter 1. So we talked about that in the second service. And that's such a help for people who look at Genesis and say, this is scientific nonsense. Mm -hmm. It only is scientific nonsense if you fail to interpret it in the context of the biblical testing method, and Joe Bertie lays that out for you.
0: And that's the beauty of the whole Word of God. We take it in context as the whole Word, cover to cover, and then it's truth. There's a
1: reason why God gave us 66 books, Mm -hmm. because each book was written by a different author, and being able to see how it consistently fits together really helps us to determine which interpretations we need to follow. Because if it's God's Word, it's all going to consistently fit together. So we need to take the Bible both literally and consistently. Oh,
0: wow. Is there anything else you just want to share with us um, that I haven't asked over the last uh, three times we've been together? Can you think of anything else that would be an encouragement? Particularly, there are a lot of young adults at this service. They're on college campuses. They're in grad school. Anything that you'd like to share that I haven't well, asked? <clears throat> you
1: know, this is an audience I would guess is predominantly Christian. And which is why I love what you said earlier, is that you know the evidences we 've been talking about here really do stand up uh, in a highly educated, hostile audience. And that's yes, one reason why we got the DVD of that debate at Caltech, because you know these were 700 leading atheists from around the world gathered together for a weekend conference. They heard lectures on why science proves there is no God uh, the whole weekend. At the very end, they had me debate Victor Stenger of particle physicists.
0: And yet it was so interesting how so many times it came from personal pain, I felt like. Like, um, you know, a a mother that survived Auschwitz. Are you really going to say that mom's not in heaven if she didn't commit her life to Christ? Sometimes it really does come down to not scientific things, but to a... An usher that was mean to me as a kid at the little Baptist church in Nebraska years ago well, or a father that walked out the door, sure. <clears throat> you know, when I was a little child or something like that. Eh?
1: Well, two things about that debate. Number one, it's an opportunity for people to see how well these evidences stand up in that kind of a hostile, educated audience. But after the debate was over, and this is not on the DVD... Um, a bunch of these atheists gathered around me and I said, you know, this weekend I found a brand new evidence for God just by attending this conference. And of course that got their attention. And I said, what I've noticed all weekend is how passionate all of you are about the non-existence of God. And also I noticed you're only targeting the God of the Bible. There's no mention of the God of Hinduism or Buddhism or Islam. It's all on the God of the Bible. I said, now, if you really were convinced the God of the Bible doesn't exist, you'd all be treating him like the tooth fairy or the Easter bunny. Your passion tells me you really do believe that he exists, but that you don't like him. Now, they gave me an interesting answer. They said, it's not that we hate the God of the Bible, it's that we despise his followers. Then they began to tell me stories of how they've been abused by Christians. And that really began to open up some doors. But I'll tell you this, those doors won't open until you first reach their mind. The reason why they're willing to dialogue with me about these personal hurts is they'd already heard the scientific evidence for why this God must exist. Their intellectual issues have been dealt with and now they're beginning to really deal with the real reason why they're rejecting Christ.
0: Wow. Oh my goodness. Could we thank Dr. Ross for being... With us here, oh my! Thank you.
1: Thank
0: Praise band, come on up. Let's. Let's let's stay standing, and and we've got just one more worship song that we think fits so beautifully with what Dr. Ross was sharing. And again, I just hope we can cram as many people into the question and answer uh, section. And Dr. Ross, um, you stay down here for five or ten minutes, but then we're going to usher you over. So because I, I know that we we want to get you over there, get you something to eat. You must be tired. Do you sleep Sunday afternoon? Do you just like get exhausted and? I crash. take naps. You do take naps, <laughs> I was going to say. Oh, my goodness. And um, and just thank you very much. You know, Reasons to Believe is right here in Glendora. You're right. on Arrow Boulevard or Arrow Highway right Right here in Glendora. So it's right in our own backyard. What a great resource uh, uh, with the books and the DVDs and all that kind of thing. So, um, you know what? I've had Dr. Ross pray for us the last two services. Now, I want to pray for him. Let's pray for him in his ministry, okay? And then, Jared, if you just lead us right into worship, and then afterwards you can talk and we'll see you over there. Lord, thank you for Dr. Ross. Thank you for uh, giving him this mind. And, and I, I know I have struggled to keep up with much of what he shared today, but thank you so much that those answers are there, and that we're to love you with our whole emotion and hearts, but with our mind as well. And Lord, thank you for how he has challenged us to sharpen our minds in the way we share you with others and in the way we understand you. So now bless him, encourage him. I pray you'll bless his family. I pray that you'll bless him in his walk with you. Bless his health. Encourage him as he goes into places that um, Christians can't often be welcomed into, but because he goes with a certain degree of expertise, he is. Oh, people are open to him going in those. So bless him as he is in many ways a missionary to the intellectual and academic community of our country and different places around the world. And we pray this in Jesus' name and all God's family said. Amen. Let's worship for a few more minutes. Thank you.